Would you please join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can gather together and just cease from our work this day, gather together as your people to hear from your word how we might be nourished by it and encouraged by it and walk in the truth of it. And I just pray that as we dive beneath the surface of our own lives and look deep, that you would be graceful with us, Lord, and that we, too, would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, all for your glory, and walk away here with renewed energy to follow you with wholehearted devotion. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is that week of the year where, once again, we're going to remember on the 15th the famous sinking of the Titanic, portrayed rather spectacularly in the 1997 movie titled Titanic by Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. You remember the scene. The ship is beginning to sink, and they go down to the lower holds to get all those who are of less means to get out of the lower hold so they can get out to a lifeboat, only to discover that the engineers didn't have enough lifeboats. And it's a tragic story for certain. And because of that engineering flaw, two-thirds of the 2,000 passengers perished that chilly April 15th day, all because they grazed an iceberg. But as you know... Only 10% of the iceberg is above water, 90% of it is below the surface. And it was that below the surface iceberg which kept expanding, which cut the hull across a good half of the ship, leading to its demise. Well, today in our series on emotionally healthy relationships, we return to this, like I said at the welcome, after a couple weeks of glorious celebration of Palm Sunday in Resurrection Sunday last week, because we're learning how to love others well and being a people who's known in this community to love others well. And I don't know about you, but it's, it's changing me and it's changing many of us as the rubber hits the road. We spent the winter quarter recognizing that we can't love others well until we love the Lord well, focusing on our relationship with Him. And that was a great foundation for us, but now we've Returning a month ago, we turned to start and setting our focus on, on how we might love others well. We've learned that it starts with checking in with people, checking in how we are doing with one another. We then learn to stop reading minds and clarifying expectations. And three weeks ago, we spent some time just looking at our family of history, going back three to four generations. And all of a sudden, the light bulbs start going off when you really do that. You go, oh, my goodness. My great-grandfather was like this. My grandfather was like this. My dad was like this. So no wonder I'm like this, <laughs> you know. And the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we own that bad and ugly and say, okay, it stops with me. I'm a child of the king. And therefore, Lord, help me to live under your reign and rule. Um. So that's where we left off, and so today we're going to dig a little deeper beneath the surface to look at our own iceberg as it comes to how do we deal with our emotions under the reign of the high priest and king, our Lord Jesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. It's Dr. R.C. Sproul's favorite book. 
uh, R.C. died this past year, and, and, and many of us miss him, but he was an expert in the book of Hebrews. And uh, when you look at Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews' intent immediately, right out of the chute, and many of our women studied Hebrews last summer in 2020 by Zoom, uh, right off the bat, the author of Hebrews elevates Jesus, that he is supreme and superior, worthy of all our trust and devotion. And in chapter 2, it turns quickly to remind us to remain faithful to him no matter how hard life gets, because life is hard. Chapter 3, the author reminds us that Jesus is even the greater Moses. And just like wandering in the wilderness like the Israelites, we are called to follow Jesus, the greater Moses, and not get left in our spiritual wilderness. That there's newness of life in Christ. There's energy and there's hope in this walk in Christ. And not to miss out on that newness of life now and the newness of life in the future. So we arrive at chapter 5 where the focus turns to the priestly ministry of Jesus. And what we see in today's text is the value of Aaron's ministry, the superior value of Jesus' priestly ministry. We see the authentic priest and king that Jesus is. Therefore, we're called to grow in maturity. All right. So let's look at this. Let's look first at Aaron's ministry briefly. Verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. See, the author is comparing Jesus to priests who all come from the time of Exodus from the line of Aaron, Moses' brother, the tribe of Levi. And you were appointed. You were born into this. And their job was to offer sacrifices for the people and to mediate between God and the people. But the priests, as you heard read, were flawed themselves. There's no perfect people here. Well, you don't have a perfect minister either. And they had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well as for everyone else's. And Aaron and the line after Aaron, no one got it right. <laughs> More was needed, the author is saying. So therefore, we see the superiority of Jesus' ministry in verse 5. So also Christ... He did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. More was needed. And so Jesus didn't come from the flawed line of Aaron. He came from the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is that mysterious priest and king of ancient Jerusalem in Genesis 14, ministered to Abraham in a graceful, loving, priestly way. And so, therefore, we hear of 
the order of Melchizedek is a different order of priest. And that Messiah would not be from the line of Aaron. He'd be from the line of Melchizedek. So Jesus being born as a king in the line of David is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the point being is that he's the ultimate priest king. He's flawless. And he's eternally available for you. You can come to him with anything. And therefore he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. Therefore the author is implying, therefore to reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only way to be reconciled to God. Don't do that. So we look at Jesus and his ministry as a priest and what Jesus does is he's keeping it real. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Brothers and sisters, God in Christ experienced every range of human emotions. Every one of them. Jesus experienced tears. He experienced joy. He was overwhelmed with grief. He was angry and distressed. He was sorrowful and troubled. He was moved to compassion. He expressed amazement. And he did all of those emotions and yet still lived perfectly unto the Father. How many of us can say live an emotional life like that and yet without sin? <laughs> he was not that emotionally frozen Savior that you saw in your Sunday school class. Did any of you guys have those weird paintings in your Sunday school class growing up? I did. This is one of the reasons I stopped going to church for eight years. At Truro Anglican Church, in our Sunday school room, not only was the, 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 the teacher mean as a snake, I was no help, by the way. But, but, but on the wall was a creepy picture of Jesus. And when Kimmy and I started teaching together, I went into that room just to see if that painting was still there, and it was gone. I go, I go thank God. He was a freaky, just emotionally frozen. So where do we get the idea that expressing or acknowledging authentic emotions is a sin? Where do we get that idea? Or it's beneath us. Or it's wrong. Probably we get that from our upbringing. If your parents had limited their emotions like mine did, you know, then you don't, you're not quick to be an emotional person. On the other hand, if you grew up in the Cordova home, which is a combination of Italian and Mexican, you know, and whatever on your mind, you just say it and get it out there, right? So where do we learn these things? And you know what? The church can reinforce this, too, by the way. The church can, you can hear texts like in James, count all joy, joy when you encounter many trials. Therefore, when you encounter a trial, in your mind, you might think it's a sin to be sad when you're having a trial, right? Or... Be bold for your faith, but yet, you know, it's a sin to be fearful to express your faith. You know, no, this is a far cry from Jesus who, with tears, 
died for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. He expressed it all. It's a far cry from Jesus who in verse 8, although he was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. So the question for us in this point, Jesus keeps it real for us. He's a real God. He is true. What emotional habits have we picked up, good, bad, and ugly? We're not saying they're all bad. How do they affect us today? And I encourage you, if you're not in a little church, there's room in several of ours. Come explore that with us, and let's dive down and look at beneath the surface of our iceberg. Because people only see 10% of us. 90% of us is below the water, and eventually what's below the water comes up, and it's not always good. And notice, the author doesn't stop there. He says, Jesus is keeping it real for us. And in his priestly ministry, Jesus being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, in his completeness, in his perfection, is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This isn't about perfect obedience. If we have placed our trust in Christ and we're desirous to grow, my goodness, guys, you're here at an inconvenient time on Sunday morning. You could be doing something else right now. Your desire, what God desires for you, to grow and to walk in his ways, to live in the fullness of life, that's obedience. All who obey him, that's us. All right? And his solidarity with us means he can save us to the uttermost. Jesus Christ, his solidarity with us, he's our triumphant, eternal Savior. His superior selection as both the eternal king and priest, coupled with his superior solidarity with us, makes him far superior in sympathy to any priest that we've ever had. I encourage you this afternoon, you know, go to one of your study Bibles or just Google Aaron, the high priest of God, and look at the garments of Aaron. It's a beautiful picture. It's, they're kind of weird looking. But, you know, it's a beautiful picture of what Messiah is to us. His ministry to us is portrayed in Aaron's vestments that he wears. The emblematic of that ministry of the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ. I want you to see him in his resplendent white glory. Whose light is a thousand suns in eternity. I want us to see how he bears our names on his shoulders as he prays for us, showing his infinite compassion for whatever you're going through. I want us to see how he has borne all our sins in a priestly body on a tree and his solidarity with us bears our present burdens as well. You are always on his heart. Think of him praying for us. The breastplate that the high priest wore had these beautiful, costly stones, 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Imagine Jesus with his nail-pierced hand, pressing his hand over his heart as he prays for you, one of those precious stones. Those seated at the right hand of the Father, the bells on the hem of his robe constantly ring a reminder to pray for us and minister to us on our behalf. His crown says, holy to the Lord, which we will all wear one day because of our trust in the eternal outcome of his atoning work on the cross. Are you getting this? It's glorious. Don't miss it. This was our high priest on the uncertainty of our lives today. Says, peace, be still. I got this. Jesus persevered in submissive prayer in Gethsemane and was heard. And our prayers will be heard also if we persevere. What motivation to just live as a follower of Christ. We have the example of Jesus' prayers. You know, when you think about it, astonishingly, there were three characteristics for Messiah. Number one, uh, the person must be God. Well, there's three possibilities, Father, Holy Spirit, or the Son. And therefore, there's only one person who's ever been the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Two, they must become human. Well, only one qualifies for that. And three, Messiah must have on-the-job experience, meaning live perfectly under the Father, and our Lord fulfilled all that for us. Christ met that by learning perfect obedience, and therefore we have Jesus, verse 6 and verse 10, who's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. how Jesus loves us to humble himself in such a way. Our lives are a continual thank you. You have salvation. You possess it in Christ. You don't have to earn his love. He's already loved you to the end and continues to love you. And now we walk in him with that matchless grace he continually extends to us. And we avail that Reveal that to us every day. And because of all that, we're called to grow and mature, the author says. But notice what he writes to the Hebrews. First, about their immaturity (laughs) in Christ. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. See, when a person truly comes to trust in Christ, their initial posture is one of humility and intense listening. They're all ears after they meet Christ. Do you remember when that was you? Do you remember when you were so excited to, to, to come and be part of the body of Christ? I certainly do. It seemed that every Sunday when John Howe preached, this is the late 70s, it just, the, he made the word come alive. It's refreshing. 
And you know, my experience was not unique. F.R. Weber wrote a massive three-volume set about a history of preaching in Britain and America. And it tells us that one of the curious byproducts of the Great Awakening was a sudden interest in taking shorthand classes. Shorthand. Why? So they could take notes. He writes, Men and women studied shorthand in order that they might take down the sermons that were stirring the English-speaking countries. This had happened once before in Scotland, and it made its appearance once more in all the countries where the influence of the awakening was being felt. It was not at all unusual to see men with a portable inkwell strapped about them and a quill pen thrust over their ear, hastening to join the, thro the throng assembling on the village green. Isn't that beautiful? You know, hey, uh, jo George Whitfield is preaching, let's go. And so you have a portable inkwell, you got a, you had a, a, a feather in your ear, and you go and you're taking shorthand notes. You know, amazing. But as usual, all that newness died down. So did the listening. Just as with the Hebrews centuries before, and with so many in the church today. To such people, it's hard to explain the deep and relevant doctrines of grace. Richard Baxter wrote a little pamphlet to his congregation at Kidderminster in England back in the 1600s. I don't think it would sell many copies today. It was entitled, Directions for Profitably Hearing the Word Preached. And he, but he gives wise advice that are very applicable for our lives today. He says, Make it your work with diligence to apply the word as you're hearing it. Cast not all upon the minister as those that will go no further than they're carried by his force. You have to do work as well as the preacher. And should all the time be as busy as he, you must open your mouths and digest it. For another cannot digest it for you. Therefore, be all the while at work. And abhor an idle heart in hearing as well as an idle minister. I'm trying not to be an idle minister for you. <laughs> but as we hear God's word, I encourage you, you know, keep your Bible open, follow the textual argument with me, look up the references this afternoon that I quote, take notes, identify the theme, list the subpoints and all the act applications, and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to see what the Lord would have you see each and every week. And so, and to apply it. So the question we have to ask ourselves, am I dull in the ears? If so, we are self-condemned to perpetual infancy, says the writer of Hebrews. No, brothers and sisters, we are called to maturity. Through the Holy Spirit, our minds can be constantly renewed. We can think God's thoughts, share his knowledge, relay his message. But the scandal of today's church is Christians without Christian minds. That we ought to be teachers, but need someone to teach 
them the elementary truths of God's word all over again. So we must ask ourselves some rather frank questions. Do I know the elementary truths well enough to help others? That's disciples making disciple makers. That's our mission statement. Am I hard to teach because I've become dull of in the ears? Am I a growing, learning Christian? See, if we're intellectually understand the doctrine of righteousness but are not growing in God's word, it may well be that we need to do some soul-searching, some self-examination, and go to the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to see and to live, to reign under His reign and rule, which is perfect freedom. Perfect freedom. And the cure to that spiritual immaturity is taking in solid food. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The universal fact is that babies cannot feed themselves. They have no capacity to distinguish between good and evil. And while a growing child will have an increased capacity, it will necessarily be flawed. Only the mature can take steak. Those who understand the teaching about righteousness and who set about to practice it will be able to make discerning judgments on how to live in these times that we live in. And all the ways, different ways that show up in our lives that we've never had to deal with before. Life as we know perpetually faces us with the problem of choosing between good and evil. Our spiritual perception is always taxed, but a righteous life that feeds on the solid food of God's word will be able to exercise mature judgments and understand what is the difference between good and evil because they're not dull in the ear. They hear the voice of God through the word of God. They listen with enthusiasm, with the same enthusiasm they had at first when they first came to Christ. And as Jesus promised, more truth is given them. What blessings mature believers are to their families and to the church family. They save their loved ones from pitfalls and their words are gracious words of life wherever they're found. The desire to grow is the most natural thing in the world, right? Because of it, the child, when they're young, takes that pacifier out and says, I'm not a baby, right? That's us. I'm not a baby. The desire to grow is part of life. And when we observe someone who has the physical growth without the mental growth, it's a sad thing. But how much more proper and beneficial for us is if we would see stunted spiritual growth in its full-blown grotesqueness. Spiritual maturity being full-grown is possible as we trust in Christ and get into the Word 
take it seriously, but not ourselves seriously. By listening with all we have, becoming fully acquainted with the word of righteousness and living it out day by day by day. And it's like taking French. You're not going to learn it overnight. It takes time. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, constantly growing in the doctrines of grace together. Going beneath the surface of my iceberg. Humbling myself. Being a little vulnerable. And spitting that pacifier out and taking a big hunk of meat in God's word. May we do that, my friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be together again and to see how rich your word is. We thank you for the book of Hebrews, which reminds us that we have a priest who in every way is able to sympathize with us and prays for us, intercedes for us, and calls us to maturity. Lord, may we, we put away those childish things. May we apply this word, and may we live for you, which is fullness of life as your word reminds us. And we ask, Lord, that wherever we're, we're, we're doing well in this and we're expressing our emotions well, may we truly uh, be uh, encouraged in that reality. And where we're not, Lord, may we be gently dealt with by your Holy Spirit and, and encourage one another in these wonderful truths so that as we love you. We can love one another here well and be a contagious place for you. For in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.